This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. And so many of you have been getting in touch this week for the Museum of Political Fiascos. It was dreamt up by Danny Finkelstein on the pod earlier in the week. John Stevens has been trying to find Liz Truss's lecture. Well, today we have had hundreds and hundreds of submissions for what should be included in the Museum of Political Fiascos. We throw open the door and I give Patrick Maguire a tour. That's coming up in just a moment. India Knight and James Marriott. Knight of the Marriott will take a look at the news. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Gillian Keegan thinks more people should be thanking her for the schools which aren't falling down. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that, no? No. Uh, we learned that Labour's Diana Johnson has got an idea to pay for the school repairs. If the minister's really short of cash in her department, perhaps one option might be to bring in a swear box. We learned that Keir Starmer was really pleased to have his new shadow cabinet around the table. You are around this table, um, so that is why you're around this table. And I'm really delighted and proud that you're all around this table. We learned that Environment Minister Richard Benyon's got an idea on how to deal with litter. I once asked the then president of the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England what he thinks the, the government should do about fly tipping and littering, and he said a a shoot-to-kill policy, but at times I'm sort of with him in spirit. We know that Rishi Sunak accidentally picked up some of Boris Johnson's very old PMQ's notes. Captain Hindsight over here. If we'd listened to him, our kids would have been off school and locked down for longer. We learned that having seen off Angela Rayner, Oliver Dowden was keen to welcome another redhead as his Labour opponent. can only say to him, the hair may go, but the skin remains the same, so I wish him solidarity in the current heat. Uh, that was uh, Pat McFadden responding. And we learned that in Flitic, you are better off uh, vox popping as people go into Tesco rather than coming out. Excuse me. Hello. I'm from the Times and Times Radio. Okay. We'll just speak to people about Nadine Dollis. Can I have a quick chat with you about Nadine no, Dollis? I've got phrasing stuff. Sorry. And that is what we learned this week. The Museum of Political Fiascos opens shortly. First, 
It's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor of my laptop, frantically battering away at my column on Times Radio. And James Marriott's here. James, how are you? I'm well. Good morning. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I am sure. I'm well. Good. Sorry, I didn't say that with much conviction, did no. I? We're on the radio. It's all good. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, India, are you better? Good morning. I'm kind of better. I just still tested positive. This is day 12. It's like a sort of never-ending joke. But I am better. So you had COVID this time last week. You sound, you sound better. Yeah, I am better. Good. Well, I'm pleased. I think India still sounds a little bit peaky. Yeah, not 100%, I wouldn't say. I would say 80%. 80%. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> James, you sound about 70%. <laughs> I'm going to warm up. I'm warming up. <laughs> uh, right, let's talk about public service. So James has read Rory Stewart's book so that we don't have to. Uh, it's called Politics on the Edge. And James heaps praise on him uh, because of his love of public service. Uh, uh, Rory Stewart imagined himself as a classical hero, a Victorian gentleman prepared to die for his country, a mo- Roman senator clambering a- up the cursus honorum towards the consulship. And you say that basically the problem is there's not enough public service about... Yes. I mean, my specific point wasn't, you know, that Rory Stewart is necessarily the most marvellous, selfless person in the universe, but that one of the things that really comes across in his new memoir is that he has this sense that public service is this really kind of glamorous, exciting thing. I think it's sort of quite an old sort of aristocratic attitude. You know, if you were kind of born in an aristocratic family in the middle of the 20th century, you would think that a really, you know, uh, important, kind of cool, romantic thing to do would be to, you know, join the foreign office or go and help people. And I think there was this kind of attitude that once prevailed that, you know, joining politics and trying to change things for the better was a kind of prestigious thing to do that I think has been slightly lost. And, you know, you know, you can argue, and I'm sure Rory, Rory Stewart's critics will argue whether, you know, the desire to change the world is a sign of vanity or a sign of genuine selflessness. But I think... This idea that he has that trying to change the world and do things, make things better is this kind of cool, prestigious, glamorous thing is a kind of useful thing that we've lost a bit. Can I mount a counter-argument? Go for it. That Rory Stewart was in the House of Commons for about five minutes. He was a prisons minister who said he was going to resign if he didn't sort things out. Luckily got moves to never had to do that. Uh, he wasn't very. He wasn't in the cabinet very often. He ran to be uh, Tory leader. He lost, and then he got in a strop and walked off. And now his public service amounts to sitting in a man recording a podcast that he earns a million pounds a year from. That is a that is a counter argument. I think. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm going to say I don't think it necessarily contradicts my thesis because my thesis was that. You know, but if he was committed to public service, he'd have stayed in the House of Commons, and he'd probably be in Rishi Sunak's cabinet now. Yes. I am not even necessarily saying that he need, you know, it's about commitment to public service, rather that it is about... A Talking that, about it in your book and on your podcast. <laughs> rather than a, a kind of atmospheric sense that this is a glamorous kind of... No, I, 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 I do mean this seriously, that it is a romantic, you know, that being a public servant is a glamorous thing. Whether or not you necessarily fulfil that, I think that's kind of useful oh, okay. sense to have in the culture, which, which he had. What do you think, India? I think he he likes dressing up a lot, Rory Stewart, doesn't he? I'm always a bit suspicious of people who like putting on costumes. Um, but I take James's point that I think people now become civil servants or indeed members of parliament for reasons of... I think a lot of people become MPs because they want to be sort of slightly famous. Um, and, and, and that is obviously not a good reason. I also think the majority of MPs still become MPs because they're interested in doing good. 
and leaving the world in a slightly better state than um th- than it was but i agree it suffers the whole the whole area suffers terribly from a kind of lack of glamour because basically everybody wants to be famous and rich for, with minimal effort and um and that's a terrible shame i agree that the the idea of somebody joining the civil service or joining the foreign office or, or whatever no longer has any actually i find it glamorous do you find it glamorous matt no, i find I, it impressive yeah i'm always quite impressed when people say they're going, yeah. you're going into the civil service because yeah. it's sort of a commitment to it i actually wonder whether the problem is your argument is quite good james it's just you've chosen the wrong person if you'd written you know a love letter to theresa may yeah although i or think ken with, clark i think with or theresa, someone who'd actually stayed in public service i think with theresa may there's a crucial difference whether the way the way she talks about it is always slightly grim you you know, she was talking about duty and making yeah. it sound like a slightly onerous, unhappy thing. Whereas I think what we need to restore is the sense that it's kind of exciting and glamorous in the same way that I think, you know, people might now find being like, you know, some kind of fintech banker or something, this kind of prestigious, exciting thing. And I think he, whether or not you believe he fulfills it, sort of believes that it is this prestigious thing to do public service. Whereas Theresa May, I think she never makes it sound fun in a very attractive way. She makes it sound like a slightly kind of you know, depressing thing, I think. Uh, somebody's just messaging and saying, Rory Stewart runs a charity. Is that not public service? Leave him alone, Matt. So that's told me. <laughs> and I'm sh- almost certain that having passed comment on people now tweet him and tell him, because they did that the last time I think we talked about Alistair Campbell's, the, the podcast. And yeah. The, oh, have you heard what they've been saying? My, my, my attempted feud with James O'Brien as well. T- telling trouble. tales. Let's it's good move. to cause controversy. Uh, oh, somebody's already done it. Tim's just done it. At Matt Shorty, a bit unfair on at Rory Stewart UK. Oh, he's done into, oh, what's he been saying? Oh, has he been moved? I'm sure oh, you're in Rory trouble. Stewart you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Now. I'm sure. I distanced myself from all your comments. I'm sure Rory Stewart could go. But no, I think you know he's very successful. He was. You know, no, he you made, a, your a argument career. is a very your argument is a very good one. I I think that maybe. Maybe he found it wasn't as glamorous as he is as the glamour that you yes that he for. that he imagined. I think that's a I think that's a good argument. And I actually think you know it would be quite good if you were still in the comments and in the in the yes. in the cabinet. If you read the if you read the book, no. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think I'm supposed to be interviewing him soon, so I should probably read it before then and stop criticising on the radio. Nah, it's going to be awkward. I'm, no, I'm more excited about reading um, Bernie Torpin's book. I'm interviewing Bernie Torpin off of oh, he's looking blank. You know Bernie Torpin is, don't you, India? Yes, Elton John's co-writer. Ah, Bernie Torpin. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm with you. So I'm interviewing him in a few weeks' time, so I need to read that first. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, This is the sort of awkward small talk that young people are incapable of doing. New university students need icebreakers in tutorials because they don't know how to socialise after COVID, according to someone from De Montfort University in Leicester. Do you think this is right? The whole generation of people forgot how to chit-chat, didn't you? I think it has the ring of truth, actually. I can see it being true. I mean, it seems bizarre because when you're in a room full of, you know, when you're at university in a room full of people your age, one would imagine it wouldn't be that difficult to think of something to say. But, you know, they all live on their phones. Everybody's been isolated because of COVID. I mean, I think small talk, I think small talk actually, which sounds so boring, but small talk kind of oils all the kind of functioning of society. And being able to make small talk is a very useful skill. So, um, so yeah, if lessons are required, then lessons should be provided because, you know, you can't go through life feeling absolutely kind of crippled with anxiety at the idea of talking to somebody, particularly somebody who, you know, maybe whose ideas may not be the same as yours. I think it's really important to just be able to kind of prattle on reasonably charmingly (laughs) and be friendly and have a nice time rather than sort of sit there mute with 
fear or disgust. Big or judgy. I mean, I'm a, yeah, I, I, if, I, if I'm good at anything, prattling on... You've got to be the king of small talk. <laughs> do you think so? I think I've so. Always, although, do you know what? There are moments when you sort of walk into a room at a party or something, and you don't really know anyone, you're sort of scanning. I'm not very good at like bounding up to people I don't know. But that's isn't that slightly obnoxious as well? But there is also I the, think it's the cool. art of doing that well. Is a, that's a weird. They, they should be terrified. I'm always that. suspicious of people who bound up to unknown people at parties oh, and start befriending. Yeah, me. no bounding, no <laughs> bounding. <laughs> no bounding. Uh, well, I tell you, I think you would be good at bounding. I reckon Emma Thompson, Jim Broadbent, Imelda Staunton, Jim Carter. They have launched an all-star campaign against a housing proposal in North London that they say would fit in perfectly in Malibu. Should 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 we put celebrities in charge of planning applications, India? I think this is so snooty. It really annoyed me, this story, um, which which is set in Hampstead. I grew up in Hampstead. It's it's very charming and very lovely. It was a lot more bohemian and nicer then than it is now when it's full of actors and celebrities. But, you know, if somebody wants to build a modern house that isn't that doesn't kind of fit in with the Beatrix Potter, Mrs. Tiggy Wiggle, Tiggy Winkle aesthetic of the neighbourhood. I think that's down to the um, to the planning department. I don't think it's down to a load of. I mean, how annoying to think I've made my money. I'm going to build the house of my dreams in the location of my dreams, and then you have loads of actors or whoever being kind of up in arms about it. When I was a teenager, there was. Um, a similar sort of protest because McDonald's wanted to ha- open in the high street, you know, imagine the horror, how common, <laughs> et cetera, Anyway, eventually this went on and on and on and on for years and years and years. Eventually McDonald's did open, but it was a teeny tiny McDonald's with um, sort of painted in farrow and ball colours with no lurid frontage and so on. And of course it was very successful and everybody went and got their burgers there. So Did it, then, did it not I, then close? Am I imagining? Yeah. yeah, it did close, but no, I mean, like decades later, yeah, as yeah, far yeah, as yeah, yeah. Um, it eventually went away. But you know, the idea that the idea that kind of well-to-do, prominent people are the custodians of the area that they live in slightly rubs me up the wrong way. The um, uh, <laughs> when I was reading it, Greg Wise, who's obviously uh, he's married to Emma Thompson. I think he was on Strictly last year, wasn't he? People know. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> he's a trained architect, apparently. So that's how he's qualified to say this is fi- this would fit in perfectly in Malibu, but not in our conservation area. And I looked at it; it's, a, it's clearly a really, really expensive modern building. Um, which you know, I've, I mean, it's been a while since I've walked around Hampstead, but I sort of remember that there was a mixture of sort of old-fashioned yeah, houses and, and modern things. And if you walk up on the on the heath and you look at you can see like all of London is a mixture of old and new. It just, yeah. There is one quite famous modernist house in Hampstead, isn't there, built by some famous modernist architect that I can't remember, but, you know, it's not like it's there's, unprecedented. There's a, glass box. there's a glass box on Dancha Hill opposite the police station, which I used to admire as a child because you could see the people. It was extraordinary. It was like a stage <laughs> that you could see. You could just see the people living their house, you know, as you went. Actually, I used to go to the public library in Keats Grove down the hill from it. So I was always going past it and you'd see them brushing their teeth and you'd see them getting the tea ready and you'd see them watching telly. And it was... That sounds great. More houses like that, I think. It was really cool. It was in stark contrast. It was lovely grade one listed properties that surrounded it. But, you know, so what, really? Let people live in the kinds of houses they want to live in, I say. 
Uh, well, quite. Well, at least, or at least just not necessarily how. God, I've been rude about everyone today. <laughs> yeah, what's, not, there's something up with lovies, you today. <laughs> lovies deciding on planning applications. Um, Ed, Emma Thompson's husband saying, actually, I'm a trained architect. I'm a trained architect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Who's this? Matt, where the did you get these two from? Tiggy Winkle. Definitely not up to your usual stack. God, everyone's cross today. Oh, oh I'm genius. Uh, uh, oh, Lisa's... Oh, no, she's not cross with us. OMG, the arrogance, the condescending entitlement of the chattering classes. Oh, that's rude. But no, she's talking about Emma Thompson, James O'Brien, so that's fine. Phew. Kate's been in touch. I'm not cross. I love your moaning. <laughs> I don't know. I know, but we're not, you know, we're not shock jocks. Although I quite like the idea that each each week we sort of you know, force force James into taking a controversial opinion. Yeah, in about two years, I will be the next James O'Brien. That's why I'm, that's why I'm, I've got a campaign against him. It's envy. I don't. I would name that high. Maybe GB News. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I can be. I can be GB News soon. Yeah. Very good. Right now, this is a this is a, a <laughs> this story really tickled me at the time today. Uh, Foils the bookshop has cut back on its books. Uh, in particular, it is the it's the foils in Bristol. I think is that I think that's right. Joanna Thomas Court is the Sunday Times literary editor, and went to the foils in Bristol to have a look. And is on the line. Hi, Joanna. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. So, uh, what happened when you went to foils in Bristol? Well, I live in Bristol part of the week, and then I'm working at the Sunday Times in London the other half of the week. And uh, and I'd heard from a friend that they got rid of their fiction section. And I couldn't actually believe it. And I remember saying to my colleagues, Foils have got rid of their fiction section. Everyone said, no, that can't be possible. And then I was walking past the other day and thought, oh, I'll pop in and have a look. And indeed, it is true, the kind of section that's the A to Z bit, which is all the kind of more backlist stuff rather than just the kind of whatever they're focusing on at the moment has just come out or won an award. You usually get on their sort of tables that piled high. The A to Z section are completely gone. And so, you know, now if you go in looking for Rose Tremaine or Alan Hollinghurst or Amy McEwen, you're, you know, greeted with super bouncing putty and, you know, glitter pens, basically. And and it's it's sad because it, it's really weird because actually when we look at the stats from Nielsen, you know, we have all the information because of our Sunday Times bestsellers. Adult fiction's up somewhere between about 6% and 9% this year, I think, and it's been up. Since 2019, 35%. So it's a weird decision, I think. It's just, have you, is this something you've noticed, James? I haven't noticed it, but it surprises me because there was a moment, I think about 10 years ago, when shops like Waterstones were doing really badly and needed turning around. And part of the problem, I think, was felt to be that they'd branched out from just selling books and they were now selling board games and glitter pens, like Johanna says. And the way that, you know, Waterstones was turned around and made immensely profit-making by uh, James Daunt, who was, um, took over as the managing director, was that he got rid of all the kind of extra junk and just said, these are bookshops, they sell books, maybe there's a coffee shop as well. And that seemed to really have kind of turned Waterstones' fortunes around. So to go back to this slightly ambiguous, what is this shop for? Why am I going to this place to buy books and also silly putty kind of thing? I can't even understand what commercial sense that's supposed to make. It's weird, actually, because the one, the big foils in Waterloo has been shut for ages, uh, and it's just reopened. And when I went there the other day, I thought, oh, I can't really work out what they've done. They've removed the, the till. Um, but I didn't note, I'm going to have to go back and have another look to see if if it's just tables of new stuff, yeah. um, rather than old stuff. India, if, you're, if you wander into a bookshop, do you, ju- do you just look at the new stuff, or do you look for the, uh, what do you call it, the backlist, Joanna? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, anything India has published probably because if it's well, exactly. older than a year or two, you know, and even though even the really good commercial stuff, you're often not finding there. And even in airports, you tend to get a sort of A to Z yeah. section, um, even if it's quite 
quite small. Yeah. What about uh, India? You've been removed. No, no, I haven't been removed. Thank you very much. I'm on a table near you at the moment. But not probably, <laughs> probably not very much longer, actually. My novel came out last October, but only in May in paper back but um but no i find it really really strange i find this completely peculiar and i can't reconcile it with the fact that people are reading more and um buying more fiction as joanna says so it's really strange and and also the fact that independent bookshops who make a virtue of kind of curating what they sell really really well are thriving after a period in the doldrums so it's kind of baffling and also you know why would you go to foils for silly putty or a new notepad i don't know it doesn't make any sense to me well, foil. If I could just jump in there, yeah. Matt, I think I think the, the the other sort of story here about Bristol is really interesting because Bristol has become such a bookish hub in recent years. Lots of publishers are moving here now, setting up small offices, and we have this really burgeoning indie scene, as as, as India just said. Um, we have sort of about four or five new bookshops, small bookshops that have opened in the last five years, I would say, and. In the last week, we've had Mick Heron come and talk here. We've had Zadie Smith selling out last night. We had Colson White ahead. And we had yeah, Jesse yeah. Armstrong the other night from Succession talking about his new book. It is a weird thing where yeah. actually all and the indie bookshops are hosting these events. So it's actually, you know, it's not like the kind of you can't buy fiction in Bristol or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a weird decision by them. Joanna, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Foils actually said, our Foils Bristol shop is one of our smaller shops and therefore is a carefully created selection of fiction. Indian Art and James Merritt, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we open the doors to the Museum of Political Fiascos. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We have scoured the globe, my Twitter mentions and my inbox, to find the most prized items in political history. From the four corners of these aisles and the darker recesses of your nerdy, nerdy minds, we've tried to create the most comprehensive collection of treasures. We have pillaged and ransacked and taken without asking. We've been to the workshops and wonk factories, the kitchens, bedrooms and wardrobes to unearth the outfits and skeletons that showed the great and good weren't so great or good. Welcome to the Museum of Political Fiascos. It's been in the making for such a long time. It was way, way back on Tuesday. Uh, when our head patron, uh, Daniel Finkelstein, and his slightly chippy assistant, John Stevens, discussed the whereabouts of the Liz Truss lectern. Well, John managed to find it. This is that eye-catching lectern, that one, that higgledy-piggledy pile of wooden blocks that was used by Liz Truss as a lectern when she became PM. My interest started, I did an FOI after she left Downing Street on how much it costs and found out it cost £4,000 to taxpayers. And then I didn't leave it there. I then later put in another FOI to find out what had happened to the leptin. Had it found a new life? Was it still in a cupboard somewhere? It turned out it was still in Downing Street. 
I did the same a couple of weeks ago and we'd almost all but given up hope that it would find a new life. It was still in a broom cupboard in Downing Street, gathering dust, not loved at all. And then I put my article in the paper early this week. I came on your show on Tuesday and then actually as I was leaving the building after doing your interview on Tuesday, I got a message with a tip off that actually there was some hope for the lectern and that he had been moved from Downing Street in recent days. Followed this up and it turned out it has actually been moved to a new home. Unknown whether it was moved under the cover of darkness or not, but it has been moved to Homes England and it is now going to be used by them in their offices in Whitehall. John Stevens revealing uh, where the lectern is. But Danny said it should be put in a museum like this. We should have an exhibition of, um, maybe the British Museum yeah. could do that as they've joined in, of fiascos. <laughs> uh, right? And so, uh, maybe political fiascos. You could have William's baseball cap, which obviously you know, I was in the vicinity yeah. of. You could have uh, this lectern, the, lectern. The, the Jenga lectern, um, the Ed Miliband's The Millie Stone. You could yeah. have. Maybe this programme can be the genesis of it. And so it is. And so it is. After up to three days of intensive work, we can finally throw open the doors on this fine institution and you can join us for a tour before someone downstairs takes everything and puts it on uh, eBay. So let's walk into the... <laughs> Just uh, walking into the... Patrick Maguire's here for a tour. I'm at the very front of the queue. The very front of the queue. The world's biggest nerd. It appears to be just... Snow on the floor, and only one of us. Maybe you're. I'm it's a giving Christmas you a, miracle. I, I'm giving you a piggyback because only one of us <laughs> is walking. Uh, well, the opening of a great cultural institution like this is a big moment, and I know of one man whose willingness to turn up uninvited to the opening of an envelope uh, would even stretch the opening of a non-existent museum. He couldn't be here, but we have been sent uh, this very touching message. This is Ed Vasey, the former Minister of Culture ringing in to congratulate Times Radio and Matt Chorley on the launch of the Museum of Political Fiascos. There's been a big gap in the museum market, although I have to say there have been one or two museum fiascos recently, but there's been a big gap in the museum market, which is now going to be filled. It's going to be stuffed to the gills with unique and archival material. And I note it's the museum of political fiascos obviously britain will take center stage but don't forget there are plenty of other countries where political fiascos are also more than commonplace and i would like to thank the government for the last seven years or so for providing so much rich material with which to launch this amazing museum that's uh, Ed Vase there. He couldn't be with us live because he's over at the buffet table. Uh, Patrick, shall we make our way in then, into the into the Great Hall? Let's. Let's. My eyes are blinded by the light dancing off this <laughs> so, beautiful marble. Wow, look at that. So dominating. Look at that. Dominating the room. Suspended from this huge ceiling. It's huge forgotten relic of a different age. All the remains of what was once a great political beast. I it, think... I recognise that from a car park in Hastings. Yes, it's a, it's a reminder that, that from history, if you like, that one minute you can be stalking the earth and the next minute you're reduced to a museum exhibit. Now, our six pledges form the basis of our plan for working people. These six pledges are now carved in stone. They're carved in stone because they won't be abandoned after the general election. We had about a million 
uh, recommendations from curators uh, and listeners who wanted that the headstone put in the uh, in the in the room. What else is in here? I think I can see some more stones over here actually. Oh yeah, ah, so these are the these are some pebbles from uh, Brighton Beach. These are the pebbles which Neil Kinnock tripped over on. Do you want a real school? Go on. I walk on the, on the water. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Kill it there, falling over in the water. I can't believe neither of those two became prime minister. Uh, and speaking of the beach, uh, we've also got this. This is a this is an international entry. Uh, we had to to steal this in keeping with the British tradition when it comes to filling our museums with things stolen from abroad. Uh, this is a sign from Dominic Raab's Crete Break, uh, which makes clear and the, the stuff about me being lounging around on the beach all day just nonsense. Uh, the, the stuff about me paddleboarding nonsense. The sea was actually closed. It was a, a red notice. Yeah, so it's a got, shame they couldn't afford the paddleboard. Yeah, so we've got the red notice instead. Uh, right, let's keep going, uh, Patrick. Uh, we need to keep moving, which is apt, because we're heading into the Chris Grayling Gallery of Transport Fiasco. Now, I imagine this is a new wing they had to build with a massive philanthropic uh, donation, because there's a lot to fit in here. Uh, we couldn't, unfortunately, get the ferry in, uh, the ferry which uh, the, the, which didn't exist, uh, for the ferry company, which owned no ferries. But I do notice all the phone bills... For all the briefings of his own leadership ambitions, <laughs> circa 2016. Now, if the Ed, if the Edstone was dominating in the, uh, that last room, uh, dominating this room is a bright red bus. We can take back control. Can I? Can I? Is this a no-touch thing, or can I get in the driving seat? <laughs> <laughs> this bus, but wasn't didn't Will Young use that bus as well? As a tour bus. Oh, that's a good call. They should, they should really have contextual notes <laughs> in front of these exhibitions. <laughs> it's because we're not using the audio guide, guide properly. Also, so we've got this great big red bus, but there's a smaller red bus just to the side here. I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in like, we're mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses. I paint the passengers enjoying themselves okay, great. on the wonderful bus. Yeah. I think that was painted by a, a nobleman. <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that was extracted by yeah, a nobleman. Little-known right. young nobleman. Little, now, now, you know, yeah, now elevated to the House of Lords, Ross Kempfell. What's now, that over there, Patrick? Well, that is a very, very special piece of transport history. It is, as you can see, bright pink, untouched, this antique vehicle, since 2015. And it was, uh, you know, part of that very successful election campaign we saw in the main hall with the Edstone. It's Harriet Harman's Barbie bus. Oh, here we go. I mean, I've just looked in my bag a moment ago and realised that my iPad was pink and it hasn't drained away my fem feminist credentials. So, I mean, it's meant to be eye-catching. If you did it now, it'd probably go down quite well, Barbie. It was, you know, it'd get the youth, it'd get the youth vote out, wouldn't it? It's not just buses, though, over there. We've got the red car, which be never actually belonged to Rishi Sunak, but which he filled up with petrol anyway. He's got the card he didn't know how to use <laughs> as well. <laughs> Uh, and then next to that is a large space where they were going to park the SNP camper van. But instead we've just got the white outline of a camper van that was drawn by the police. And what's that over there? Ah! Half a dozen traffic cones. Do you know why that's there? What, what are we supposed to do with those? Uh, well, you're not meant to do anything with them. You're meant to call the number that's written there and tell John Major you've seen some traffic cones. Oh, very good. That's nice for the children. A bit of interactivity. It's a cones hotline. <laughs> So coats hot, very good. And then there's just a, a whole, there's a glass case here of just some other smaller transport items. Margaret Ferrier's train tickets from where she travelled from Scotland to London and back again, even though she'd got COVID. Uh, and that old-fashioned yellowing one there, that's Dennis Healy's unused uh, ticket to Hong Kong, 1976, when he was Chancellor, you know, squeezing the rich until their pips squeaked. He was on a trip to Hong Kong, or en route to Hong Kong, uh, when he had to turn back and go to the Treasury uh, and get an IMF bailout.
I mean, that is properly niche. Thank you for the whichever listener uh, said that in. Uh, now, that we were also able to have a tractor in this room, but frankly, this is a family day out, and we don't want any of that filth. I, uh, funnily enough, it was tractors that I was looking at, and um, so I did get into another website um, that had a sort of very similar name. I did think um, I recognised that And I watched one. it for a bit, which I shouldn't have done. <laughs> Dirty boy. Uh, right, we should move on, then. Let's leave the, uh, the Chris Grayling wing... Uh, and let's leave the Chris Grayling wing of the museum. We're off to the uh, the uh, the catwalk of fashion fiascos. Uh, I don't usually go in for this. You just see rooms full of emotionless, lifeless wooden mannequins, don't you? Uh, that's a, no, that's actually, that is actually Theresa May oh, right, uh, wearing okay. her £995 leather trousers. Uh, and then right next to that, we've got a sort of Guy Fawkes dummy uh, ready for the bonfire. Oh, oh that's uh, Jeremy Corbyn in a shell suit. And well, in this glass case, we've got. Is uh, that is that a relic from a holiday to the Netherlands? Why does it say Hague on it? Uh, no, very good. No, I think it's a, a relic from a trip to Cornwall. It's oh, William yeah. Hague's baseball cap. Don't do anything unwise to try and grab that attention. I think is the the uh, moral of that particular episode. Uh, and Michael Foot's donkey jacket. Uh, no, not a donkey jacket. As Michael Foot and Jill Craigie, his wife could have told you it was actually a very expensive green overcoat that Jill bought from Harrods uh, for his winter coat not a donkey jacket at all as much as it looked like that uh, and we've also got in here some accessories as well Doug, Danny Alexander's yellow budget box when that's he held up his own that's <laughs> probably niche from 2015 uh, and in this uh, interactive area a blue shirt a uh, blue shirt this was uh, put in here by the uh, curator Times columnist Robert Crampton this isn't very nice particularly from an aesthetic point of view. Remember Tony Blair's sweat-soaked blue shirt? <laughs> At the, when, he, uh, when he mistakenly wore a, a, blue, a blue rather than a white, a white shirt, shirt. Yeah, yeah, it's very risky for, for a party conference speech. And, uh, and then did his big, big yeah, yeah. thing at the end with his arms up and uh, it was absolutely saturated. That can go in like the fashion room. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a few yeah. suggestions of that. And you could get like an odour, like a, like in the cinema where you get sort of smells and Scratch stuff. and sniff. That's the Tony one. Blair's yeah. Yeah. shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to scratch that, Patrick? I've already touched it. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, so this is the... Ah, oh, now we're entering the John Stevens wing. Well, you know what? I hate you go to museums and everyone's got a wing that's named after a controversial philanthropist. <laughs> <laughs> so this is John Stevens uh, dedicated John to... Uh, this is all dedicated to lectern fiascos. Uh, well, maybe Ed Vasey, when he's finally got away from the buffet, he can help us get the funds together to buy Liz, Liz Truss's Jenga lectern from Holmes, England. There's a gap here, but there's plenty, plenty else, plenty to see here, Patrick. I mean, each what's nice actually is on each lepton, uh, you can uh, you can press a button. Shall, shall, I, shall I press this first? Press one? that one, yeah, yeah. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Oh, very nice. Last seen this lectern in Halifax in 2017, just after Theresa May had binned her controversial dementia tax. The moment she arguably lost that election. But there's plenty. There's plenty of uh, Theresa May uh, lecterns here. Here's another one from 2017. I'm not sure I want to touch this one. No. It's covered in a sticky film of some sort. It does. Oh, is, it, is, that, is that phlegm? Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> Public sector working together. Why, <coughs> why we will never. <coughs> yeah, I think we'll leave that. Um, we... <coughs> all right. Oh, dear. Uh, and then there's this one. This was uh, David Cameron's lecture, which he last used in 2016. Uh, yeah, that was your right. Now, this is an interesting one. This is not really a letter. What's this, Patrick? Ah, it says this was last used in Blackpool in 2003 by someone called Ian Duncan Smith. Mm, doesn't ring a bell. What was he doing? I say this. 
The quiet man is here to stay and he's turning up the volume. And he was turned out by his uh, <laughs> colleagues certainly after now john major's soapbox we had a few nominations for this should john major's soapbox well be i think this is controversial curation although good museums these days try and be provocative and try and you know shake us out of our uh, shake us out of our cozy consensus you know 1992 john major got on his soapbox first for the first time in cheltenham i think and you know he took the fight you know, Labour had a very yeah, glitzy, yeah. very well-produced campaign. And he, he won against the odds. Yes, he right, did. We're not, we're not having this. We're going to hand that over to a different beauty. We're going to loan that. Repatriate to, that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, this is an old favourite, Patrick. Uh, do you want to push the button on this, Lecto? Oh, you're too kind. We're all right! We're all right! <laughs> so this is from Neil Kinnock's victory rally in t 1992. Can we do that again? Oh, Can press then. that again? We're all right! We're all right! It's nicer than to have translated... Uh, what Kinnock insists he said, which is, well, all right, and not all right. <laughs> right, we need to move on. Uh, ah, now, in this room, in the Museum of uh, Political Fiascos, it's just, it's just a weird collection of odds and sods that we can work out where to put. Uh, so we've got lo lots of lots of listeners wanting this to be put in the museum. This is the far bigoted woman said she used to be very... That's uh, Gordon Brown's lapel mic from, uh, from Rochdale in 20... 2010. You know, that should really go with uh, the Gillian Duffy memorial lapel mic should the go Gillian with the Gillian Keegan. Keegan. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all the about the, 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 the Gillian box. Yeah, the Gillian yeah. box. Uh, what else? What's that over there? Uh, that's a bin overflowing with... Those look like... Those look like documents from the Cabinet Office. Ah, that, yes, that's Oliver Letwin's bin. I was walking around dictating responses and simply wanted to make sure that the pieces of paper were not weighing me down. So. Yeah, it turned out he was dumping uh, government documents in, in bins. This is a visitor's announcement. The museum will close in ten minutes. Uh, oh, ah, uh, we need to get on. We need to crack on. Right, right so we got, right, we're going to have to rattle through this. Uh, What's this reconstruction of a suburban semi-detached house? <laughs> I think it's all about the fact that the flag on that, that's the that's the Rochester, Rochester flag. Uh, image from hatch, hashtag Rochester. Yeah, Emily, Emily Thornby lost her job in the Shadow Cabinet in 2014 after apparently sneering at flags. We haven't got time to have a go on Jennifer Arcuri's uh, pole dancing pole. I'll tell you what, let's have a quick go on this. This is good. This is an interactive karaoke-style exhibit where you can pretend to be Jeremy Paxman by shouting at Mike, this Michael Howard dub. Or is it the real Michael Howard? Right, Patrick, you have a go. So let me just read, let me just read the, the text here. Did you threaten to overrule him? The truth of the matter is that Mr. Marriott did you threaten was to not overrule suspended. Him? It tells me that did 12 times. Did you threaten Derek. to overrule him? I took did advice you to on what him? I could or did could you not do. Did you I did not overrule him. Derek was not suspended. Did you I threaten to overrule him? Did you for my decision did you to dismiss Derek Lewis. What a lot of fun. What a lot of fun. And fun this, for all the family. Uh, this, uh, there's a filing cabinet marked paper fiascos. Uh, one whole filing cabinet just full of Andrew Britton's letters of no confidence oh, wow. that he sent to Gra uh, Graham Brady. Uh, this takes me back. This is Paul Nuttall's CV. This is Paul Nuttall's CV. Oh, I mean, it looks impressive, but is it all true? No, and I've never claimed I've got a PhD. And, on and, website. Uh, it's not on my website. It's on a LinkedIn page that wasn't put up by us, and we don't know where it's come from, OK? So I've never ever, claimed that at all. Did you ever play professional football for Tranmere Rovers? I played for five years for Tranmere Rovers as a schoolboy and a youth team player. I've never claimed that I've been a professional. It was one press release in 2010 put out by a press officer who knows nothing about football. <laughs> it's really good this stuff has been saved for the nation. It's good. It's always, it's, there's a place for it to be. Uh, there's a roll of wallpaper in here as well. Neville Chamberlain's piece of paper proclaiming peace in our time. That all, that's all there. Ah, oh, this is a treat. What's that, Patrick? I'm saying wing roulette, half chicken, medium with spicy chips and garlic bread. Ah, 
this could only be Gavin Shuka and Change UK's Nando's receipt. Oh, t- that takes us right back, right back. It takes us back. That and long then, table full of political heavyweights. On the top of here is part of the paper ex- exhibition is Gordon Brown's printer, where children can take it in turns throwing it at the cabinet. Uh, Patrick, uh, let's. Uh, so all of these things have been recommended or uh, put forward by Times Radio listeners and guests this week. Look, we don't. We're running out. Of time. We don't have time to go in the Trump International we, Gallery. We can't go into the Trump International uh. Gallery. It's basically they've got like hanging chads, Justin Trudeau's blackface makeup in there. A bottle of cloudy water from a Bunga Bunga party jacuzzi. Uh, just Rudy Giuliani, the Four Seasons Total Landscape. But we don't have time. We've got to crack oh. on. Because I've, I thought I'd treat you. I've paid for the extra, you know, the, oh, the, thanks, the, the temporary exhibition. Uh, a guided tour of a special exhibition from Elaine Chalice, who's Professor of British History at the University of Liverpool, is here to show us around. Hello, Elaine. Hi, Matt. Hi. So, uh, tell us about the fiascos from the 18th century. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a couple of, of elections that ended up being controverted. We, we would call them fiascos, but they certainly created some attention. How well, would that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. That's exactly what we want. Okay. What, what's the first me, one you've got to show us? Okay. The first one I'm going to tell you about is Wells-Somerset election, which is from 1765. It was a, a by-election uh, called by the fact that one of the two MPs, the, these were all uh, two MP seats, had been called up to the Lords. So there was a seat open. And there was a, a man who was the son of the uh, earlier mayor of the town, but he was an aspirant. He, you know, his, his dad was a mercer. Uh, he wanted to... Uh, to work his way up in the system yeah but the established people didn't want him so they called him the burcott bear because he was a big bluff um big genial chap and they fought for four months if we think about short elections this was a four-month election wow. and in the end what they did and this is the part that's really interesting is they called the election they held the election they started the poll two votes were cast and then the mayor who was on the other side um went off in a, in a huff, stomped out of, of where the election was being held, went off with everybody that was his followers, started an entire, entirely different poll, ran a completely separate election, and they had two full election polls done. They submitted all the results. Um, our luckily uh, Wells person won, except <laughs> he didn't, because oh. it went all the way to Parliament, and Parliament decided that because of the way the election had been held, if we went back to the charter in Wells, because Wells had a charter that dated way back to King John, the mayor had the right, and so consequently, even though the guy had won the He'd vote, won. so they won two elections and he still won. Uh, Elaine, tell us about Miss, Mrs. Punch. Ah, oh, yeah, Mrs. Punch is wonderful. This is this is a Hinden election, Hinden in Wiltshire. It's 1774, and Hinden is one of these places that's really venal. Yeah, people expect to be paid. Um, you go and you get favors, and you go to the local pubs, and they basically have holes in the walls or holes above the door, and they give you money. It tied up in a little piece of paper. But then you also had a week before the election, they had a, a man who dressed as a woman who went around town. Uh, surrounded by uh, people carrying flags and staves and and bats, basically clubs, giving money out to people at the door. And some people, some families earned up to 20 or 30 guineas from this. Now, if you multiply that by sort of 60, you get a sense that this is a huge amount of money for a vote. This one was... This one was so contentious, this election, that basically they ta- the Parliament tossed the election out entirely and ended up putting the two candidates uh, in jail for six months for bribery. Wow. 
Uh, Elaine, really good. So, so, uh, thank you very much for showing us some of those old fiascos. Let's head to the uh, the uh, cafe of political fiascos. Now, needless to say, a lot of entries, a lot of entries for this one. Uh, now, what do, oh, what should we have? Uh, well, it's uh, it's half eleven. I haven't had a proper breakfast. Do you I don't think I lost with the bacon sandwich. <laughs> I don't think I lost with the bacon sandwich. Uh, uh, second, I'm thoughts. not sure about that. He doesn't um, seem to be enjoying it. Something, something a bit more specialist. Now, you said to me about eleven o'clock last night. It seems like another age. That if the exit poll was right, you'd eat your hat. Well. This oh, is a hat. You are you are and so predictable, aren't you? I just knew you'd do. I wanted to get a bigger one. <laughs> I bet you. Mm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure why I want to be Paddy Ashdown's hat. Uh, but but right. Uh, you could maybe eat a hot dog with a knife and fork, like David Cameron. Mm, I'm not really feeling that. What about a burger? There's one of George Osborne's posh Byron burgers, which he was eating while he cut spending. I'd like something more traditional. Have you got anything more traditional? Yeah, uh, there's John Gummer's delicious, definitely BSE free burgers. There is no need for people to be worried, and I can say perfectly honestly that I shall go on eating beef as my children will go on eating beef because there is no need to be worried. Well, his daughter seems to be enjoying yeah, it, so I'm yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> There's a choice of eggs, too. I think I'd give Edwina curried eggs a miss. Uh, John Prescott special mm, that sounds messy they well, he's, he's got it all down his face they throw the egg at you then you punch them in the face mm, uh, yeah. what about the Michael Gove Scotch egg although is that I don't know is that a starter or a main um, well as far as I'm concerned it's probably a starter um, a couple of Scotch eggs is a starter as far as I'm concerned uh, a Scotch egg is a substantial meal Mm, I'm not sure if it's going to fill me up or not we could get something from the cold fridge over there that Boris Johnson hid in uh, they've got David Miliband's banana uh, Pete, well, come on, Peter Mandelson's guacamole. Oh, what a treat. What a treat. Oh, hang on, let me, on closer inspection, that's not guacamole. No, that, that's mushy peas. And there's just lettuce. So, so much lettuce. Actually, I know what I'm going to have. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Yeah. Sorry, what is that? A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. It's what they call the Keir Starmer breakfast. Oh. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. What are you going to have to drink? Ah, uh, is it too early for a tipple? No. So that's basically all there is. You can have a suitcase of booze, uh, a Diane Abbott mojito in a can. I'm thirstier than that, though. Uh, what about a tray of 14 pints, or what they call a William Hague? Yeah, go on, then. Well, we need to crack on, Patrick. We're running out of time. Uh, we, I don't think we're going to have time to go into the uh, the salon of musical fiascos. Oh, but can we, get, can we get something to remember the day with? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm we haven't got time for that. That's we haven't enough. got time for that. They haven't got time for that. We haven't, well, to be honest, they haven't got the Nick Clegg video recreated Carly Rae Jepsen's I Really Like You. We haven't got time for John Redwood singing the Welsh National Anthem. We haven't got time for the slightly eerie fiascos <laughs> that never existed. That's David Cameron's oh. pig. We don't have time for that. Or we definitely don't have time for Keith Vaz's washing machine. Let, let's go to the gift shop. What do you fancy in the gift shop? Uh, oh, those shoes look nice. Hang on, they're much too expensive. They're £480 pounds for a pair of Prada uh, loafers. You're not having those. Uh, what about what about those? Uh, well, I've, my godson would love that blue brick and orange hammer set. Yeah, that's the Ed Davey uh, kit. Uh, okay. Yeah, you could definitely have one of those. Uh, very good. Uh, or I just might buy one of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's massive marrows. Take one of those home. Put that in your trousers. Uh, <laughs> Patrick, have you enjoyed your tour of the Museum of Political Fiascos? Honestly, I've enjoyed it more than I enjoyed going to the National Railway Museum on my 28th birthday. Well, listen, we, at this point, we must pause and thank our team of curators, our team of listeners, who ha helped pull together this extraordinary exhibition. 
Leslie Smith, Mark Chapman, Miranda Green, Stephen Thomas, Mike W, Susanna Rolls, Tim Grindle, Brian Robson, Richard Jacks, David Manning, Darren Newman, Phil Jones, Peter Horston, John Michael White, Simon Page, Nicola Roberts, Andy Day, Stephanie Ellen, Helen Walton, Phil Jones, Liam O'Hara, Paul Dempsey, Alan Chaplin, Martin John, Alice Lilly, Jonathan Jones, Richard Jacks, Graham Lovelace, Catherine Mills, Tony Reed, Roddy McDougall, Catherine Miles, David Sells, Nicholas Faulkner, Phil Burgundy, Ed Fryer, Katie Parker, David Stubland, Christopher Gay, Mark Lee, Philip Morris, Martin McLeish, John Campbell, Larry Dunstan, Pippa Poskett, Tim Carter, Julie Nins, Katrina Congleton, Philip Lowe, Harry Atkinson, Stephen McMillan, Bill Rankin, Fiona Van der Sluice, John Wensley, David Kaufman, Simon Witts, John Wensley, Jason Blair, Sarah Shaw, Tim Smith, Dan Johnson, Dee Goddard, Jonathan Andrews, Anne Dixon, Janet Edge, and Bob McCluckey. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode, I'm afraid. If you want to see more, you'll have to book a return visit to the Museum of Political Fiascos. Do get in touch with me at any time, matt at times.radio, for other submissions to future exhibitions. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.